Welcome to another episode of Ribcast, the podcast of the Chest Wall Injury Society. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Adam Hansen, a new member of the society, for a discussion about slipped rib syndrome. I trust you'll find it interesting. Dr. Hansen provided us with several videos and images of the syndrome he'll be describing. These images can be found on the Chest Wall Injury Society website or by following the link provided in the episode description. We're here with Dr. Adam Hansen, who's going to be talking to us about slipped rib syndrome today. Uh, Dr. Hansen, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your practice, uh, and your interest in rib fixation. Well, I am a, a general thoracic surgeon. I trained in Arizona, and then I got recruited out to West Virginia. I'm, a, uh, I'm part of a group at West Virginia University, uh, attending surgeon there. I started off as an employed surgeon a few years ago from a, a relatively large hospital in a small town in West Virginia. And then we have pretty busy practice because we catch about half the state. And so I see a lot of injuries that come along the interstate and uh, a lot of people that just have a lot of various uh, general thoracic needs. So at any rate, I joined uh, with WVU, uh, West Virginia University, about a year ago, and it's been pretty fun since. I see, as I mentioned, quite a few um, chest wall injuries. Uh, a lot of them I have realized over the last few years that are just really not being treated. Uh, they're, they're just being left alone and uh, treated conservatively, which I've noticed not been a real good outcome. So I started, uh, I, basically I just kind of looked up, uh, as to who's doing uh, or what industry partners are doing, you know, the appropriate rib fixation. So I've just kind of learned how to do it on my own. Uh, with a little bit of collaboration with industry. So um, I started plating ribs and had really good results and really enjoyed uh, seeing people get out of the hospital a whole lot sooner. And that's led kind of a little bit of a springboard into a few other things that I think people don't really think about too much, but I see at least twice every day uh, in my, in my practice. Uh, one of the issues that I see is, uh, you know, you do an abdominal operation, like for example, a hiatal hernia repair, laparoscopic hiatal hernia repair, and then you'll have most of the issue be resolved, but the patient will still have this lingering upper quadrant abdominal pain. And you'll look at your incisions and make sure there's no hernias and all that stuff, and you'll still be uh, bothered by the fact that the patient just never seems to get 100% better. And I think it's probably true with a lot of different abdominal operations that you, you still see this lingering pain. So I started looking at the costal margin uh, on my patients and found that there was I mean, these patients, if you touch right on their, on their costal margin down uh, at, at the bottom of the rib cage in the front, they will jump up and hit the ceiling, essentially, and they you know, just start crying. It's a horrible pain. Uh, and so I kind of looked into this. I'd never even heard about this in my practice, or excuse me, in my training. Uh, but I looked it up, and I found out about intercostal neuralgia, and that led into a little bit of learning about slipped rib syndrome. And this is a syndrome that I believe was kind of reported back in the early 1900s or 1920s by a few doctors and given a little bit of attention back then. But I think it's since been essentially forgotten. And what I find is that if you just, I mean, you, you'll find these patients that have been seeing specialist after specialist, they've been going to physical therapy, they've been 
on narcotics or Neurontin or other you know nerve stabilizers, they will have gotten worse usually with physical therapy. And so they're kind of at their wits end. They don't know where to go. And then they'll finally make it to somebody that knows about this. And in my case, I just, I've seen these patients have had MRIs and CAT scans and ERCPs and HIDA scans and all kinds of stuff. And none of it's been really revealing. And then I just found that you just put your finger on the tip of the ninth and 10th ribs right where they come together. And that's when these patients would just jump off the table and they will tell you that is the source of their pain. Interesting. Then that led to a little bit of research as to how you fix this. And really the literature out there is extremely poor. In fact, I have a two volume general thoracic surgical textbook, the most common one that people use, and it's not even mentioned. It's not even an index once. And so what do you do about it? And so I did a little research. I found that people have been cutting out ribs over the years, but they always mention it as a last resort. And so I've not ever done that. I've never gone and resected the, you know, the lower ribs for pain. I think that would actually create more pain. So I just started fusing the ribs back together, essentially just sewing them together. And I've had amazingly good results. I've not done a whole bunch of them, but I've done enough to see that 100% of them have at least the 80, 90% reduction in their pain. Wow. Very simple little operation that, I mean, I, I think anybody could do it. Uh, and anybody can make this diagnosis. You don't even have to have any scans or anything. You just make it in your office. So it's a very inexpensive and easy diagnosis and a really big benefit for patients that are otherwise in just miserable agony. And I can't, you can't, over, can't overstate that. They're miserable. Tell me in a little more detail what you mean when you say you're just sewing the ribs together. Tell me about that. So I kind of sort of had to experiment a little bit on the first few cases where I've, I would go. So I'll center about a five centimeter incision over the top of the place where, you know, you touch it and you mark it where they're having their worst pain. And it's usually right over, like I said, right over the curvature where the lower ribs uh, come together at the ninth and 10th rib all share one piece of cartilage right there so i center my incision about about five centimeters is all you need and i i don't cut the muscles so the external oblique is right there you can just basically separate the fibers and you can easily with your finger just lift up a little flap that exposes all those lower rib cartilages it's a very easy dissection to get down there so now you're looking at three or so ribs all coming together into one common piece of cartilage and then you'll see that the 10th rib is one that it's not supposed to be a floating rib. It's supposed to be attached. And it's the one that now is separated. I've, I've measured it and I've gotten up to about three centimeters of distance between the ninth and 10th ribs. So that intercostal space has gotten much larger than it's supposed to be. And I've seen, I've seen some that are really far out, you know, but essentially just bringing them together is all I've done. So I have not resected the cartilage tips. So I've not resected anything. I leave everything the way it's supposed to be. And I just take some heavy braided permanent suture. In my case, what I've used is I went and raided the orthopedics carts and found some fiber wire, a size five fiber wire is what I've used. I honestly don't even know who makes it, but it's a very heavy suture. Uh, and I just I skive over the top of the end of the ninth rib. Okay. So you want to avoid the intercostal nerves completely. You don't want to touch them. You don't want to get close to them. So I skive just barely be over and behind the rib. So I also don't puncture the pleural cavity and I don't create a pneumothorax. 
and then I'll take my suture out just above the 10th rib and then I'll dive it back in and I'll take a the second part of the suture through the lower part of the end of the 10th rib okay so then I'll make a, a figure of eight suture just do that twice through the cartilage through the actual cartilage and then I take another one back through the bone okay so you want to have a you know, but basically I think most of the tension is going to be held by the stitches that you put through the bone. And I found that the suture just passes easily through the bone. It's, it's relatively soft right there. You don't need to get drills. You don't need to use anything fancy, just a heavy suture. And, and then how, go ahead. How many are you putting in? How many sutures? Yeah. I just put two figure of eight sutures, two figure of eights. Mm-hmm. And, and I, you know, over a span of maybe four centimeters, and so, and then you you tighten both of those together. So, you know, you pull up on both the stitches and tie them down at the same time. I've, I've found, unfortunately, on the first one I did a few years ago, that it's very easy to break the stitch through that bone or through the cartilage. So you really want to make sure you're pulling up all your tension together. Uh-huh. And what that does is it just brings the tip of the 10th rib into approximation with where it's supposed to be attached on the ninth rib tip. And you'll see that it reconstructs it and it makes it very stable. And all I did was just sew up the external oblique and close the incision. And then, uh, and I failed to mention, I do some nice intercostal nerve blocks. I like to use the, you know, the liposomal um, anesthetic if you can, something that'll last them for a few days to get over the hump of the, of the healing. Sure. But, but every single one of these patients that I've seen back, I see them at one week and then I'll see them back at one to two months. And I'm telling you, they have a remarkable improvement in their pain. That's very They're interesting. Yeah, and I give them a few pain pills, obviously, you know, just get them through that. But then the goal is to take all these, you know, narcotic using, you know, people that are on all these drugs, all these like Lyrica, Neurontin, and all these things that are, you know, they've unfortunately been given to them because they have no other source of, of relief. I like to get them off all this stuff. And I think in this era where everybody's trying to get everybody off of narcotics completely, this is the perfect solution to what I find to be a very common problem. Interesting. What is the etiology of that separation? I've seen uh, a few different sources of it. I had a young guy that rolled an ATV, and I think he bounced kind of on both sides, and I think he separated, he fractured that that cartilage. But then I've seen some, you know, maybe people in their about the fifties or maybe between their forties and sixties, actually, that you see it seems to have just been a chronic, uh, just weakening of the little ligamentous or uh, you know, just the the tight attachment. It's supposed to be only a few millimeters long between those ribs, it has lengthened. And I, you can see actually a nice little line of that, of that ligament that has elongated for several centimeters and it's allowed that rib to, to fall down. And then what you see is you see this subluxation. So the, the, the bottom or the 10th rib will either go over or under the ninth rib and they'll get this popping sensation. And not all of them have it, but all of them have the pain, like you know, every single one of them. But some of someone will tell you about this popping that happens every time they move or they change positions or if they're stocking shelves at work or just anything, any movement will exacerbate this and they'll feel this popping or this clicking. And they, they all routinely say that it brings them to their knees with the, the amount of pain that it gives them. Very so what, what I think I've figured out is just, I mean, I'm sure it's common knowledge, but those intercostal nerves are some of the most sensitive nerves in the whole body. And anybody that's made a thoracotomy incision knows that they're, you know, they can be dealing with a person with pain for months afterwards, sometimes even years. So this intercostal nerve that runs between the ninth and 10th rib, I think is the victim 
of the subluxation of that rib. So the constant, just minor bouncing and just constant uh, repetitive bouncing of the 10th rib up onto that ninth intercostal nerve causes a you know severe hyperalgesia in that nerve and just chronic irritation. So my theory, and I, I mean to you know publish a series on this, my theory is that you bring, you restore the bony anatomy and the nerve issue will will follow right so it will it will become uninflamed and it will stop being painful once you stop that repetitive trauma from happening sure so you mentioned earlier on um that you see this sometimes in patients who have had an abdominal operation that didn't fix their symptoms do you think that those are patients who are originally misdiagnosed or do you think there's something about abdominal operation potentially retraction or something like that that may cause or exacerbate this that's a, that's a good question. I've, I've thought about that a little bit. I think, you know, I've, I've been, you know, uh, guilty of using some of these more aggressive retractors like Thompson retractors and stuff that you basically, you're holding up really hard on the, on the, um, the lower costal cartilages. Absolutely. That's, I think that's certainly a, a possible scenario as to what could cause this. I think more likely though, these are patients that they're being diagnosed wrong. So they come in and, you know, they just happen to have gallstones at the same time that they have this right upper quadrant pain. So the automatic answer would be, right, go after the gall- gallbladder, take it out. Sure. And then, then you see them back in post-op and they're just not resolving their pain, right? So I, I don't think that it's probably in, in most cases probably caused by a surgeon that does the, makes the incision close to it or anything like that. I think honestly, like, I, I think it's just misdiagnosed and you're seeing the patient has a difficult time differentiating where that pain's coming from. So in my case, I do a lot of hiatal hernia repairs and I do place one of my trocars very close to that lower costal margin. Yeah. And if you get it close enough, you're going to get inflammation of that, that intercostal, that inter, lower intercostal nerve. And that can extend all the way out to the midline. It can even extend all the way back to the spine just with the, the inflammation. But I, I started seeing that and then I've started blocking, you know, doing a little intercostal nerve block, which I knew to do, you know, for a painful incision right there. And that made all that pain go away. But in these cases where it may not be related to the incision, they're interpreting whatever other pathology is going on, their visceral pain, they're kind of collectively putting it together with whatever skeletal pain they're having right there. And so I think it, it takes an astute doctor to even think of this what I would recommend, and I've been talking to my colleagues in general surgery and my colleagues in gastroenterology and even to some of the primary care doctors have been saying, look for this. You know, you put your finger right there on that lower costal margin. If you feel a separation between that ninth and 10th rib and you can put your finger between them and that causes pain, you've made that diagnosis and you may very well save this patient unnecessary surgeries. And I was talking about one of my gastroenterology colleagues yesterday and he says, man, they do ERCPs on people all the time and just never fix, you know, they can't figure out the source of their pain. And he thought that he, he called it, um, he just costochondritis. He said, it's kind of like a wastebasket term that when sure. they can't figure it out, they just call it costochondritis. And I'll bet you a lot of primary care and people out on the front lines are seeing that and they're, they're probably attributing it to that wastebasket term costochondritis. And if we look a little bit closer, you'll probably find that a lot of these are actually a slip drip syndrome. So you look in the in the literature and you see, you hear you read all these papers. There's actually not that many, but the ones you read, it always mentions that it's a rare entity. I disagree highly. I think you'll see this at least a few times a week if you look for it. If you're looking for it, exactly. Right, 
And so I've just had some fun repairing. I've had such a, a, a pleasant experience with repairing a few of these that I've started looking for it. And I, I'll be honest with you, I schedule about two of them a week now. Really? Well, uh-huh. it's interesting. I mean, that's how, that's a lot of what led to um, rib fixation for traumatic injuries, right? Is seeing a problem that was under addressed and finding a solution that really worked well. And I think that really breeds interest in a problem. Absolutely. And I, I, we were talking earlier, you and I, about, about the chest wall injury society. I think that it plays such a pivotal role. I think the more people we get involved in this, the more people actually realize how important these unaddressed or underaddressed problems have been over the years and stuff that we've just ignored because it was either too difficult to deal with, or we just, it was just a headache. We didn't want to deal with a bunch of rib fractures and stuff, but you get involved in this and you start doing some of these fixations and you realize what a, an absolute wonderful difference it can make in a patient's recovery. And they'd be, you know, they, they will be your friend for life. These patients are very happy Absolutely. as I'm, I'm sure you've experienced. Yeah, definitely. Let me ask you another question. So if, so the problem is primarily with the intercostal nerves um, and mm-hmm. definitely I understand the strategy of addressing the anatomic problem to correct the nerve problem. Have you ever thought mm-hmm. about it the other way uh, with a nerve block or an ablation, either for diagnostic purposes or for therapeutic purposes? Absolutely. What I do routinely in my office, it, and this is how I kind of learned how to learn that fixing it might be a good idea is I would do, uh, I'd have a little cocktail of uh, long acting and short acting um, anesthetic in, in addition to a little bit of catalog. And I'll do a, a, a nerve block over a few uh, intercostal nerves that I think are irritated. But now I've started using that. I found that that only lasts, you know, 12 hours or so, unless you're doing the liposomal injections. And at best, you're getting about three days worth of, of coverage. But what I've found is that I've started using it as a diagnostic maneuver. So you've, you've essentially made the diagnosis. You're, you're quite certain about it, but not 100% with just palpating that area. And you, see, you feel the, the mobile rib and you see the pain that comes out of it. But if you go ahead and you give an, an intercostal nerve block over the ninth and 10th rib intercostal nerves, you will have a patient that came in crying in pain and they're walking out with a smile on their face and laughing at how cool that was that you just made their pain go away. Yeah, that's- so I think, I think it is super fun, you know, and it is very satisfying, but you've also very clearly established the diagnosis with, without using any expensive radiologic techniques or anything, you know? Now, when these patients do have a CT for some other reason before they get to you, is this separation something you can see on the CT or is it more of a, a functional separation that you can't necessarily see on static imaging? What I learned at the, the recent chest wall injury summit uh, was, I mean, what I, I had confirmed was something I've already seen is that you can't see these on a CAT scan. The costal cartilages are real, like, almost invisible. They're very gray. They're not very clear. No matter which window you look at them in on the CT, you're really not seeing a very clear mm-hmm. image. And in addition, most CAT scans of the chest are not going to go low enough to catch those lower rib cartilages. So unless you specify, or unless you happen to get an abdominal CAT scan and and look at the ribs, you you might see a little bit of separation. I think in a severe case, you're going to see separation and a little bit of asymmetry of the ribs from one side to the other. The one that's more separated is probably likely the one that's going to be the problem. But I can tell you routinely, you really don't see this very well on a CAT scan. So what I've done at my institution, and I've yet to use it because I just barely set it up, was an inspiratory and expiratory phase, as we talked about in this last yeah. meeting. 
uh, a CT scan with 3D reconstructions. Now, obviously, you're getting twice the dose of radiation, so you'd want to probably use this sparingly. But I think in a difficult case that you're really not 100% sure that you've made the diagnosis clinically, you could probably use that CAT scan as an adjunct. But I honestly, I think this is an old school diagnosis that you can just make, you know, at the bedside. Yeah, that's great. Really interesting. I mean, I, I will say uh, out of anything, I mean, I do some big operations, you know, and this, this is, <laughs> to be honest with you, it's more satisfying than, than a big lung yeah. section, you know. Think a patient that comes in and you're like, oh, great. This is like kind of a neurotic patient. They're probably a drug seeker. They're, they've got other issues. They're all diagnosed with these somatic disorders and they're on a hundred different psychi uh, psychiatric medications. But you take them and you take them at face value. You actually believe them that they're having miserable pain and you fix that. It's so satisfying. And this has become one of my favorite operations to do. Well, that's really interesting. I'm, so, I'm specifically thinking of one patient I have who had a thoracotomy years ago and now has pain similar to this. And I thought maybe she had a, a non-union or a malunion fracture and the scan didn't show it. And I wonder if this is what mm -hmm. she's got going on. Yeah, you know, and I, I would say, you know, I'm as guilty as anyone when you actually do an open thoracotomy, you're really retracting and you're changing, you're, you're dislocating some of these rib uh, attachments to the sternum or to the spine. So it's very very likely that a patient like that would have had a little retraction of their ribs during the thoracotomy with the rib spreader. And it certainly is possible that you, that could have been a dislocation of one of those ribs. Now I've seen it not only in the ninth and 10th rib separation, but I've seen it in this, in the seventh and eighth as well. So it's a little bit more difficult because it's a little bit more solid cartilage up that high. The lower uh -huh. one is easy to palpate, but the upper ones are just a little bit harder to, to deal with or harder to figure out. But I've done a few of them where I have sewn, you know, the seventh and eighth uh, cartilages together and then gone from the eighth to the ninth or, you know, something like that where you basically just kind of daisy chain fixing mm -hmm. each each one of them together and you end up with a pretty stable cost of margin there. Nice. But, uh, but I think also just kind of be aware of the, the patient you're mentioning, it's possible that um, they, they just have simple intercostal neuralgia at the site of, of the thoracotomy. So it could be the fifth intercostal nerve that's really inflamed. Uh, and that is a difficult problem to deal with. I personally haven't gotten into uh, intercostal nerve ablation, which you asked me about earlier, but I think um, that that's certainly a, a, a pretty vi viable option for someone that has that chronic post-thoracotomy pain. Yeah. It's a little bit separate issue, but I think, yeah, if you're, if you're interested in or, or know how to do nerve ablations, I think getting up to the fifth or sixth intercostal nerves for a patient like that, that's had the post-thoracotomy pain may be a very good option for them. Yeah. Now in the, in your literature review and in your series of these patients, is there a, um, is there a predominant side or does it seem to be relatively evenly distributed? I've seen it listed both ways in the literature. Um, to be honest with you, I think I've seen about equal um, distribution and I would say about half the patients have it on both sides. Oh, really? And in those people, do you fix it bilaterally in one operation? I haven't. I'm sure you could. I kind of, I mean, since this is a little bit of an evolving uh, uh, little project for me, I haven't um, definitively spelled out whether I can tell you 100% it's going to work on everybody. Sure. So I, I've addressed the, the more symptomatic site first. And if they've had excellent results, then we've proceeded with the other side. Interesting. Really interesting.
Yeah, I mean it's cool stuff. It's it's such a small little issue, you know. I mean it's 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 like a nothing operation. It take you maybe thirty minutes. The first time you do it, you know, it might take a little longer just to really make sure you know the anatomy. But after you've done it a few times, it's a really quick operation. It's very minimally invasive as long as you're not penetrating the pleural space and causing a pneumothorax. Um, and and it's got an incredible high payoff. You know, the patient will love you for it. Yeah, that's great. It's just an elegant solution to a bad problem. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, how cool is that? You don't even have to spend any money other than the operation on it. You, know, you don't have to do, do, do any imaging or anything anything fancy, you know. It's a, it's a testament to some of the old ways or best, you know. Great. Awesome. I love it. Well, thank you for your time, and uh, welcome to the Society, and thanks for your uh, contributions and participation. Absolutely. I'm, I'm glad that uh, the, the group has, has uh, welcomed me. It's, uh, I look forward to many years of taking part in it. Thank, thanks for your time. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Ribcast. Keep your eyes open and let us know on the Slack channel if this is something that you see in your practice. Special thanks to Dr. Adam Hansen for his willingness to share his knowledge, slides, and videos. Thanks to Dr. Tom White and Sarah Ann Whitbeck, as well as the entire education committee of the Chestwall Injury Society. And thanks to the band Ask Again for providing the music for this episode.